our last, uh, the last sermon series uh, that we finished last week, um, uh, I can't even remember the title of the sermon series, but <laughs> I'm all about what we're doing now. But um, Nicole uh, brought me a prayer last week. It was just a real uh, blessing that she had written. Uh, and uh, I remember the first sermon uh, that uh, we looked at, we looked at, we asked the question, where is your Gethsemane? And we looked at Jesus' life and how before he, before he would go to Jerusalem and he would carry out that call that God had placed on his life for all of us, uh, he spent some time with his father, listening to his words of truth uh, for him. And, and, and God gave him strength as he will do for all of us. And uh, Nicole brought this, because uh, I asked the question, where is your Gethsemane? Where do you go to find your strength in God? And uh, she wrote this prayer that I just wanted to share with you. Uh, and it, for this week, it's been a prayer for me every morning. See me, O Lord, sitting here in Gethsemane. I'm in search of your peace. My soul is aching for your comfort. The path before me is covered in fog. We had a foggy morning, didn't we? <laughs> Glad you all made it safely. Please, O oh Lord, show me the path of the journey. Use me, O oh Lord. Give me the knowledge to speak your word so others may rejoice in your mercy. See me, O oh Lord, in Gethsemane. Nicole, thank you. Uh, that is from the heart. Uh, and I hope that, that those are the kind of prayers that you're writing as well, that you're, you're speaking out to God, to know that God is there in the middle of wherever you are at, and you can reach out to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for meeting us in this space. Thank you, Father, for uh, uh, in the middle of the fog, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the shadow, uh, just as the psalmist says, you walk with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we can say with joy, my cup overflows. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you, Father, uh, for meeting us here today. And I pray, Father, that you might open up our hearts to understand the way that you love. The way that you love. And that we might love the way you love and how you have called us to love others in jesus name amen so i just want to put out a little reminder here for all of you that especially you husbands and fathers maybe even sons valentine's day is wednesday February 14th. So you have a week and a half to prepare. There should be no excuse for any of you. Valentine's Day is the 14th of February, okay? I say this because I've known what it is like. My wife reminded me, I was so sad, I'll confess my sins before you. This is what you should do when you're, the first thing is you do as a pastor is you confess your sins before your congregation. And I was heartbroken by this uh, because she said, you know, we, we've lived in our new house for six months. And you've never brought me any flowers. I just wanted to break into that song. You don't bring me flowers. <laughs> you don't sing me love songs. Okay, maybe that's her song to me, but I will rectify this this year. <laughs> yeah.
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I want to, hopefully I can make it a surprise. It's not like, well, when is he coming through the door with those flowers? I hope it'll make it a surprise. But anyway, I just want to remind you. And as we are anticipating Valentine's Day in the month of February and what all of that means, I, I thought it would be a very, uh, very ap applicable for us to handle a phrase that we use often in our church. And I would use this phrase to describe the kind of love that we have for other people. Unconditional love. We've used that. How many of you have used that? Okay. We've all used that. We say we want to show unconditional love. And maybe, and I think probably for each of us, and my assignment for you is to define, what does that mean for you? What does unconditional love mean for you? When we say unconditional love, what do we mean? Are we consistent in creating a space within our community that people feel confident and safe to open up about the most sensitive areas of their lives? Do people truly feel loved with no strings attached? Uh, Jimmy read a passage, and I would just want to refer us to John's very strong words about our love for God. We love because he first loved us, right? It's our response. God loves us, and we're able to love because of that. And then he says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. I just want to pause there for a moment. It doesn't say, if anybody says, I love God, and then says, but I hate you. He's not saying that. He's talking about, you use the words, I love God, but then your actions don't display it. You're lying. We are lying. I am lying. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, get that? Cannot love God whom he has not seen. I would even say that as we understand the, how we are all created in the image of God, when we look at the other person that we see beyond the thing that kind of makes us uncomfortable with that person and we see the image of God, we can truly see God. We can see a part of God in every human being in all of creation, if we'll look. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So in the next several weeks, what I'd like to do is I'd like to wrestle with how Christianity seems to have drawn lines. And we do this, right? We, we, we even describe our rules and our our laws and things like that, and we say, here is the line. Don't step over the line. But I think the problem is, is we're not very consistent in drawing our lines. Because one person would say, here's my line, and another person will say, it's here, and another person would look and say, but you've already crossed over this one back here. And so there's all kinds of confusion. But I want to propose to you that that's not what God intended to do in the first place, that Jesus... Instead of drawing lines, he draws circles. He draws circles, and we can see it in his teaching. We can see it in his text. We can see it in all of his interaction with people that he loves so much, so much so that those circles were so large that it made the religious leaders of the day nervous. And anytime you and I, we understand this, right? When we, you as an individual or we as a church start to kind of press past those lines that we've created, we want to say, well, but this. We want to make an exception 
We want to draw another line. We want to draw another rule. And yet, it seems like Jesus says, I'm going to keep making the circle larger and more inclusive of all of creation. His circle was big enough to include sinners like me. And his circle was big enough to include sinners like you. Amen. I mean, that should be for us. I'm here. We're, we're able to be able to be here and stand in the presence of God. If the circle is big enough to include me, how can we make it bigger so that we include others? Unconditional love, simply put, is love without strings attached. It's love to offer that you offer freely. You don't base it on what someone does for you in return. You simply love them and want nothing more than their happiness. And I realize that probably is making some of us uncomfortable because we can think of people in our lives who have stepped across lines in our lives, the lines that we drew. We drew in our head, we drew in our heart, and we say, but, but this, that doesn't make, and, I, and I, can, I, I have those two. I have those two. Uh, so I, in, in my uh, study preparing for this uh, sermon series in the beginning of this sermon today, I was just kind of thinking about where, where do I want to, you know, looking at Jesus and how he displayed unconditional love. And so I, I looked up that passage that uh, Jimmy read a little while ago, 1 John 4, but I accidentally looked up John 4. What is, it, what is the story in John 4? It was like classic. It was like God wanted me there. The Holy Spirit wanted to point me to probably the best opportunity that Jesus shows us unconditional love. Do you know what's there? It's the story of Jesus meeting the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, we think we know this story, right? You know, like Lowell's always pressing the envelope. He wants to kind of poke holes in what I know, and I'm doing it for myself. All right, let's look at that. John chapter 4. Uh, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And I'll just pause right there. There he is. He's drawing his circles. And here comes the Pharisees. And they're, they're already saying, they're already looking critically at Jesus because he's drawing these big circles. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples who were doing this, which I love that. Because it wasn't just that Jesus was saying the words. It's like the disciples were free to encourage other people to be involved and to be welcomed. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Joseph, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. If you look, look back in Genesis chapter 33, you will see where Jacob went to Sychar, and he settled there for a while. It doesn't say that he built a well or he, he dug a well, but it was very common that wherever they settled, they would dig a well. So here he is at Jacob's well. It was a well that he dug, and it's still, it, the text says it's still there today. Uh, my travels in Israel, I didn't get a chance to go to where that was. But there were a lot of wells there for sure. And here, in the middle of the day, Jesus comes and he sits down at this well. <clears throat> Verse 7. Uh, 
Oh, yes. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I just want to pause there and ask the question, or pause on that question that the woman asks. Or, the, I'm sorry, pause on the question that Jesus asks. Will you give me some water to drink? It's strange. It's already laid out there in the text. It's very strange because the woman was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew. They're totally different races. And Jews were not, would not associate with Samaritans. It's written in their law. You don't associate with anybody that is a Gentile, anybody that is different than your, your tradition, your religion, even your nation. You do not associate because it would taint your witness. It would taint your personhood. And not only this, she was a woman, and she was alone. A man and a woman at a public well chatting it up, <laughs> right? How would that look? But Jesus wasn't even concerned about that. Most men would have not even acknowledged a woman unless someone would have gotten the wrong idea. Jesus didn't seem to care about appearances. And from the woman's perspective, having a man talk to you is like, like this would have made her anxious. She was probably nervous. What is this man doing talking to me? And she she would have been surprised to bump into anybody at this time of day, right? It's the middle of the day. It's hot. <laughs> Trust me. At noon in Israel, any day is hot. Nobody is outside. The women would have come to the well at the beginning of the day to draw water. So here is this woman. Why is she there alone? Why is she coming in the middle of the day? Why? Is she here? Let's continue on in the text. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring, a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to her, him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband. And come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Now let me pause in that part of the story and deal with this situation. She has had five husbands. I, and we're already moving in our seats a little bit here, right? Because we automatically assume because of the way that we have read this story over and over again. 
we assume that she is a woman who cannot keep a husband because she keeps sleeping around with other people. We assume this. And that, I'm not saying that that is incorrect. But the text doesn't say that. The text does not say that she was unfaithful. It could be very possible that all five of her husbands died. We don't know this because we don't have the details on either side of it. And that would have not been an uncommon occurrence in the Bible. We could cite several different situations where a woman is left alone and a brother or someone else will step in to marry this woman so that she is not left destitute. This could be her situation. The men also, this is the other part of the story that is very, very important for us to understand. The men could have been the one who, ones who were unfaithful to her. And as a result, she could be the victim of their infidelity. And that is something that even in those days is not spoken of, and we have a problem with it as well. The fact is, Jesus says, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. The man she is with is not her husband. Why? Why is this the situation? Again, we, we assume, because of the way that we've read the text, that she is with this man out of wedlock. But it just says that she is with this man. It doesn't say that she's sleeping with him. She could be relying on him to provide something for her because otherwise as a woman in that culture again she would have been destitute she would have not had anybody to care for her so out of her grief and her shame and her worry and her fear she finds herself in this situation she may be thinking i've given it five tries and i'm not going there anymore every one of them has ended in heartbreak Regardless of what her story is, that's where she finds herself. She finds herself in a place where she is all alone, dealing with heartbreak. So she says, what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now I just want to go back to that question. Not Jesus' question, will you give me water? But her question. And I think that her question can be said very simply like this. Jesus, what are you doing talking to me? This doesn't make any sense. And it, to me, it's such a haunting question. 
such a commentary about how people feel about religion, even today how people feel about the church. This is unexpected, to take the time to stop and actually have a conversation with somebody, to not be so busy, to not be so concerned about appearance, to not allow our convictions keep us from displaying the love of Jesus. And we have our prejudices. We have to admit, we have to look at our lives and evaluate, what are my prejudices? What is it that keeps me from talking to somebody? If they're not inside the church, then there must be something strange about them. If they have a lifestyle that is different from what I am accustomed to, that is somebody that's going to be difficult to talk to. And we make assumptions. Those on the outside also have prejudices about us, don't they? We might be friendly, but we draw lines. And they know that we draw lines. People on the outside who look on the inside know that if you're a part of a church, you must have this belief system. You must have these convictions. And so, to even, not just to darken the doors of our congregation, but to engage in conversation with somebody who comes out and says, I'm a Christian? I don't know how many conversations I've had about like that before, where you, know, you have a conversation with somebody, and I, I'll never forget, one, uh, this happened just a couple years ago. I've uh, been meeting with students at uh, Notre Dame. We were taking lunch and, and just, having, just meeting students. I didn't tell them that I was a pastor. I just don't go around looking like that, and I don't wear the collar, right? So uh, I don't, and apparently I don't have that look about me. So, you know, and so you, the students would come, and some of them know who you are, but I'll never forget this one, this one young man, uh, and he would, he'd have conversations with me, and, you know, he'd just throw out words and all kinds of stuff, and you don't let that bother you, and you, you just ask good questions. You learn the story, and eventually there was a moment where... He said, what do you do? Because I think maybe he thought I was a professor or like, what are you doing here? It's like, well, I'm a campus minister. I'm a pastor. Oh. You know, you just do that backward step, you know. It's like, oh, you're one of those. Well, and then he had to qualify and say, well, I'm an atheist. And I said, you know, that's okay. I'm, I'm enjoying having lunch with you. Uh, he's actually one of the individuals that I have the closest relationship in, in, in our ministry today. And I'll never forget, it was on Easter weekend, and he told me, he says, I am no longer an atheist. I am a Christian again. That's God. That's not me. But it is the way that we can project ourselves and, and be just like Jesus in this moment. It's like, I know all about this. But I'm, I'm, I'm opening this up to meet you where you are at. Give me some water. And we know that our, the words that are going to come back to us often, unfortunately, are going to be, why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me? And so we have to change our culture so that people in the world don't look at somebody who goes to church or somebody who's a Christian as somebody who doesn't talk to somebody who is on the outside looking in. The second thing, Jesus breaks down barriers. He breaks down barriers. There's all different levels in this whole conversation with this woman. Recognize, watch what he does. He's speaking to a woman 
in the middle of the day with nobody else around. He breaks down gender barriers. The women would have all been talking over here and the men would have all been talking over here. But Jesus, being uh, the example of integrity, yet he goes to this woman and he says, it doesn't matter to me if you're a woman or not. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to talk with you. And more than that, I want to listen. I want to listen. The second barrier that he breaks down is one of race. The, the, the people, the Jewish people would never have walked through Samaria. There's Galilee to the north where Jesus spent probably 80% of his life around the Sea of Galilee. And then Judea, which is to the south where Jerusalem was. And here are the disciples and they have two options. They can go from Galilee to through Samaria and take the shortcut to get to Jerusalem. Or they could do what like every good Jew does and walk around Samaria because they didn't want to soil their shoes with the dirt of Samaria. They don't even want to see and be in the presence of somebody who is not of their race. And Jesus says, oh, forget that, I'd rather have the shortcut. And he goes down through Samaria and he, not only does he talk to this woman, but he talks to somebody who is of a different race and he is not ashamed. He is not too proud. And the last thing that he does is he breaks down status. Where are you at right now? What are the words that would define the situation that you are in? The grief, the shame, the worry, the fear that she may be dealing with, all of these things that she's dealing with, and he says, talk to me. Sit down with me. Uh, that doesn't bother me. The status, whatever that is, and like I said, we don't know. There's not enough clues in the story to tell us exactly what's gone on in her life, but the point is, is that Jesus sits with her and is not ashamed of her. And the last thing is that Jesus took an interest in her life. Unconditional love takes an interest in other people's lives. Her struggles, her grief, her shame, her belief, even her beliefs, right? We often go to what we assume the person needs, I think. We, we, we feel, I think there are times that in evangelical Christianity where we have to, we are on a mission. Like we're going, the reason why I'm in relationship with you and sitting down at this coffee shop to have a conversation with you is so that so that in a week's time, we can have a Bible study and we'll baptize you. And score one for us. Woo! <laughs> and we often, oftentimes, we'll go to behavior correction. You got to get all of these things right in your life before you can even enter into the building, before you can even enter into relationship with me. And I'm, I want to tell you that that, that attitude often uh, shuts down any opportunity that we could have, and that person will not feel valued. Because we have communicated that the only value this person has if it is, is if they are like us. They do the things we do. They behave a certain way. When did this become our job? 
right? Is this what the scriptures tell us to do? Our, our job with the people of the world, and it's right from the very beginning. Why did God put the Israelites in this, in this tract of land to this land bridge? It's because all of this commerce was going back and forth, and he put them there to be a blessing to the nations. No matter where they found themselves, that is our job. I like to describe it like this. Our job is to set the table. That's our job. That's an easy job. I remember when I was a kid, that was my job. You know, mom's got dinner, it's cooking, it's smelling really good. My dad's sitting at the TV and he's watching the news as he did every night and still does to this day. And, uh, but our job as kids was to set the table. Come on, kids, set the table. You know, my mom taught us how to lay out the, the plates and the forks and the knives. And then at the end of the dinner, our job was to do the dishes. So we'd always try to find a way to get out of that one. <laughs> but that's our job. That, that's what you and I do because God has given us everything that we need to be able to set the table. Hospitality, generosity, the gifts that we have, all of these things set the table so that the world around us are welcome and they belong there. And instead of drawing conclusions, we look at the other person and we assume good in them because they are humanity created in the image of God. That should be our first response to everybody that we see. And instead of doing all the speaking, ask a question and listen up. This is what Jesus does. That's all he does in this. He asks her a question. He doesn't go poking at her and saying you've done all of these things. In this text, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, now he does this in a couple other instances because it's pointed out, but he doesn't say to her, now go and leave your life of sin. Again, it's not assumed there. It's just, I want to know who you are. I want to have a conversation and get to know what makes you tick. I want to see even beyond that to see the beauty of my created daughter. And then we trust. As we sit at the table, this table that we've set, we sit at the table and we trust that Jesus sits there. You ever think about that? Like we get so busy doing our programs and everything, we get so busy doing things, it's like, wait a minute, did we even invite Jesus to this dinner? Is there an empty chair for him, metaphorically? Have we, have we set up a situation where we trust that Jesus is there doing what Jesus knows how to do best? Because I will screw it up every time. But he does something amazing through the generosity and the hospitality that we do together as a body of believers. And he will transform hearts. He will be the one to correct behavior. He will do something amazing at this table where those barriers are broke down and the, the other people feel like, hey, I belong here and I can wrestle with whatever I need to wrestle with in this situation. That's unconditional love. And I just want to, I want to pause and, and, and say that we'll talk about this a little bit more. This is completely different than church correction. And what I mean by that is, because I think we get it mixed up, and all I think we have to do is look, look at the way Jesus, how Jesus handles correction. We, we've done the opposite. In the church, we don't do a really good job of correcting other people in the church, because we don't want to. I don't want to offend you. I want to please you. But we keep people out of the church 
because we want them to behave a certain way. That is totally the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus set a table, a huge table, and he welcomed all people of all different colors, of all different genders, of all different belief systems even, like this woman. And he said, you're welcome here. But in to the religious leaders, he was harsh and he was hard, not because he hated them, but because he wanted them to be better. He wanted to remind them to be who they are supposed to be. We'll talk about that more later. But I hope that helps. I hope that helps. And notice what happens. It's incredible. The woman leans in. Because I think sometimes we look at these situations, how can I have a conversation with somebody who's on the outside? They'll run away from me, and they might. <laughs> they might. But Jesus did it so well. He asked questions. He embraced her. He, he spent time. He looked into her eyes, and he welcomed her into his presence. And guess what she did? Well, she started to lean in. and like, nobody else is talking to me, but what are you doing? You're talking to me. He doesn't make any judgment. He just speaks truth. And he opens the door for the woman to engage with him. Oh, it's beautiful. I, I want to pause, and I want to share a story uh, by way of video. Uh, I know some of those of you who have been on the I Love Southside team for uh, several years, uh, some of you have already shared with me that you have read one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite books. Uh, Father Gregory Boyle, uh, who it runs, uh, runs a ministry in the gang, the gang area of Los Angeles. It's called Homeboy Industries. They've done interviews and documentaries here and there on him, and uh, he's written several books. Uh, Tattoos on the Heart is the first one. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the other two. That's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll remember them, but Tattoos on the, Herd is the, uh, on, on the Heart is the first one, and it speaks, a, it speaks a story of unconditional love. Just listen to this. My name is Miguel. I'm head of security, community relations, and there's no place like Homeboys. My name is XCAM. I'm a operations supervisor at Homeboy Electronics Recycling. My name is Marvin Kelly. I've been there 10 years now. I'm the manager of tattoo removal. My name is Inez Salcido. I went through the 18-month program, and I am now the substance abuse case manager at Homeboy Industries. Homeboy's success certainly is based on that we have grown many leaders from within the organization. I got the two tries in prison. That life wasn't for me, and I wanted to change. My mutual friend told me, hey, come down to Homeboy's and you might be able to get a job. I was at a dark place in my life. My family wanted me to get right. I wanted to get right. When I was in prison, I always thought nobody was advocating for us. To a lot of people in prison, we're just a number. They could judge us whatever way they want, but once they get to know us, they get to know the real us. Every person that comes in that door is treated with love and kinship and compassion. We come from broken homes. We come from, from the streets. When we come to Homeboys, we're here to offer something completely different than what we're used to. You know, We offer the love, the compassion, the unconditional love that we don't get when we're out in the streets. It's more about relationships with every single homie that walks in through the doors. We were those people coming in. They see us like, you know, we're bettering ourselves. They want to come be a part of the family, too. Doing security at Homeboys, you kind of become a therapist, a navigator, a case manager, a friend. 
It's an opportunity to give back, to work with individuals, be able to try to show them the right way of how to conduct yourself, being accountable, showing up on time. If you don't know these simple stuff, like, man, you're not going to be able to keep a job. The trainees need to learn, and you know, I want to teach them. The important part of being a trainee for me was like watching the, the leadership. It was important that they were homies because um, watching them, I was able to see that I could do it too, you know what I mean? What Homeboy does is restore and give hope. Once upon a time, I was them, and with hard work and dedication, it just let them know that anything's possible. I'm in awe over what they stand for and their unbelievable commitment for the organization. People are gonna make mistakes, right? It's good to know that, you know what, the door is never closed. No matter how down you are, there's a door that is always open. Homeboy Industries was the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's about the people that, that need the help, that need the hope, a little bit of love and a little bit of self-respect. It's changed the way I see the world. The world needs more of Homeboy Industries, you know? I was supposed to die in prison, and I'm out here. So this is the dream. They're really good examples of what leadership is all about. There's no place like Homeboy Industries. We're willing and we're able. If called upon, we will show. Loving somebody and caring for somebody without knowing them, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, that you're like, wow, this is it. I'm in the right place. love that expects nothing in return. What if, uh, I love the last phrase, and I mentioned this at the beginning, but uh, when, when people are part of our, our, our community, and they say, I'm in the right place, and I belong here, that's my wish. That's, I think, our wish. That's our desire. Uh, and it, it does cause us to reflect, and I think it's very good for us to always be evaluating how we are doing. Are we truly showing that kind of unconditional love, and what can we do? What can the, what's the next step that we can do to even be better at that? Um, throughout the series, we're going to, I feel like I want to I wanna challenge us to look at the things that maybe we don't tend to look at. Uh, because we're afraid to look at it. But we have to look at it. We have to look at how we are doing at welcoming other people. Because those stories, those kinds of stories will never be a part of our story if we don't. If we don't. I want to close by, this is one of those beautiful stories in the Bible where we can actually see the outcome. Because you go further in the text and you see uh, what happens. Again, remember, you don't know all the details about this woman's story, but you know that her life was transformed. And so when you go a little bit further into to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, which is another way to say he sat down and listened to my story So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. They wanted to be with Jesus. They didn't care. You broke down the gender and the race and the status. And because of his words, many became believers. 
They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What a beautiful testimony. What a beautiful testimony that would, tr that would happen for us if we transition from, uh, I'm coming here because I like this, body, this, this church, which is great, you know, and somebody told me about it and they invited me and, and I feel a part of this community. But it was there that I met Jesus. <laughs> it was there that he transformed my life. And those are the kind of testimonies that we, we hope to always be, always be hearing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Father, for your love that is, that is truly unconditional, that you don't expect anything in return, but you expect amazing things to happen with your creation because you created us that way. I pray, Father, that throughout this week that you would impress upon us the goodness of what you have made us how you have made us, that we would come to the table and sit there with you and that you would transform our lives and that we would live that out for your glory and honor. Thank you for calling us your beloved sons and daughters. In Jesus' name.